From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Joanna, what's on your mic? What's going know. on? There's Joanna's like on looking at her mic. She's like, I don't know if I like this mic today. This is the problem intro- with the rotating studio. Mm-hmm. Well, who else uses that mic? I don't know. Probably Tim McCurdy. <laughs> he doesn't bathe. Stop. Dirty McCurdy. Don't say that. <laughs> of course he does. He's the only other person that uses the studio anymore. Yeah. So what? <laughs> jumping right into it, let's talk about uh, articles on the on the site instead. Yes. Uh, Joanna, kick us off. Yeah, we've had a lot of wonderful wine content published uh, recently. Um, our tastings director, Keith Beavers, wrote a piece on natural wine last week. Um, that was really great, and I thought very incisive. Um, you know, this idea that natural wine kind of started as a, a movement and has evolved um, into something that's quite far from what it originally purported to be or, or meant to be. And, and we were kind of, uh, confused. I think it's, it's quite flawed is the word that he used, which mm-hmm. I thought was very clever. Um, but yeah, a really interesting take that I think people have been somewhat reluctant to, to say in the current wine, uh, environment that we exist in these days. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was great. Uh, we also had a piece from Shana. Sorry, I'm doing another one. A Shana, Shana Clark um, about pretty much what we discussed last on last week's episode about Gallo acquiring uh, Rombauer and Massigan and kind of digging into that a little bit more. Yep. So I, I thought those um, were great. Lots of other great stuff on the site. Zach, what about you? Well, I enjoyed a piece about a cocktail that I was largely unfamiliar with, but is apparently the drink of the U.S. Open, the tennis tournament, that is. I don't know if the golf tournament has its own drink. I don't really care. Um, the honey <laughs> I think a lot I of them do, must. actually. Yeah, certainly the uh, Waste Management Open has the – its drink is all of the drinks. But yes, that's the only one I'm familiar with. In any case, uh, a really fun piece in part because I think it's such an interesting illustration of – I think in this case, Greg was really understanding what would make a drink work in the setting of the U.S. Open, right? Like the U.S. Open, for people who are not big tennis fans, and I'm not a huge one, but I went a few times when I was in New York, and it's it's a pretty distinct tennis tournament, a little more raucous, a little less stuffy than, you know, certainly like Wimbledon or even the French Open. And you wanted something, I think a drink that really would, you know, kind of connect with the sort of lively nature and just sort of the fun. And so it's, you know, it's a, it's a raspberry lemonade vodka with, uh, you know, three honeydew balls that look like tennis balls. And it's just like, yeah. you get exactly why it works. At least to me, you know, it looks, uh, distinctive. It is, you know, flavors that are broadly appealing. Uh, but it's also not just a co- copy paste drink from another setting. And so, yeah, just that was a cool piece and and uh, an interesting one. Even if you know, I'm not sure that the a massive sporting event is a place where I would go for like the primo cocktail experience. But again, yeah. when you're there, part of what you want is just something that feels like it connects with the the vibes of the place. And I think the Honey Deuce does a good job of that. Yep. Yeah, uh, I mean, for me, one of the things that I always find interesting is Aaron Goldfarb's predictions on what new bourbons will be the next tater bait. Uh, and so he had a, a really interesting piece yesterday. Or unicorns. On sort of, yeah, what the new unicorns he thinks will be, the, the new things people are going to go for. Um, and I generally agreed with most of the ones he had. I think there's been a lot of buzz around Maker's Mark, their seller age selection. I think Russell's Reserve has you know, consistently had a lot of buzz around it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sort of the offshoot or the – some might say – 
more craft bespoke project from you know the Russells who make Wild Turkey, um, and they're now doing like a single Rick House collection. So like you know if you're if you're a tater and you're getting really into bourbon, <laughs> like this came from this specific Rick House on this rack, like all that kind of stuff. I think is something people love. Bardstown I think is is one of these sleeping giants for a while now, massively private equity funded. Uh, I've been to the facility. They're just they're building Rick House after Rick House. I think. They're making a lot of bourbon for a lot of other people, too. Uh, so I think they, they figured out pretty quickly how to do it well. Um, and they're going to be a brand that I think is going to continue to grow on the scene. Barrel. I actually didn't really know a lot about 13th Colony, so that's my bad, K. Luke. And then I love that he threw in Fortaleza at the end. Is like, mm-hmm. And if you're interested in what's going to be tequila, for him it's Fortaleza. And again, I think this sort of perfectly ties into the conversation I want to have today, which is... Uh, innovation versus fast follow and what that means for marketing. So I was having a really interesting conversation with a um, a colleague in the industry who's held a lot of different jobs in marketing and told me this really interesting story that um, I thought was very instructive to what we see happening in alcohol all the time. And so he said that, you know, there's this famous story about how Gatorade lost its way for a few years. Right. And basically what he said was, um, Gatorade has always been known uh, as the pinnacle of sports drinks, right? It is the sports drink that is preferred by athletes, um, and it is the sports drink that is promoted by athletes, right? And it is authentically promoted by athletes, right? This is not something where athletes are simply paid to drink Gatorade. Gatorade has positioned itself over decades upon decades as being the thing that athletes should drink to quench their thirst while they are performing at the uh, highest level possible level. And there were a few years uh, in the early aughts where Gatorade got sidetracked. And so basically what happened was Gatorade came onto the you know, saw this new upstart come onto the scene, and that new upstart was vitamin water. Mm-hmm. And vitamin water was basically selling a lot of the things that Gatorade was selling, but to a casual audience, right? And so Gatorade saw vitamin water growing, growing, growing via Coca-Cola. This was pre, I think pre the Coca-Cola purchase actually, but it's growing, growing, growing. And instead of continuing to do what it was good at, which is market itself as the beverage for athletes, it completely pivoted its strategy for three to four years and tried to go after the casual drinker. So repurposed Gatorade as the drink that was instead for the casual consumer who just wanted something kind of that wasn't soda, that wasn't water, that felt healthy still, which is basically what the vitamin water uh, sort of, you know, sell was to yeah, most people, yeah. right? Like there's there's water, but there's vitamins in it and it tastes like something sweet and sugary, right? I mean, that's basically what vitamin water was and that it had 50 cent. Um, <laughs> who made a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. So the problem here is the Gatorade took its eye off the ball. Its entire team changed their strategy. They didn't talk to the core consumer of Gatorade. They talked instead to the casual drinker of whom was always present for Gatorade, but never a very large portion of the Gatorade market. Yeah. And... Then what happened was Gatorade allowed a competitor who'd been nipping at its heels for years, Powerade, Powerade, power fucking aid, (laughs) to steal share from it, right? To basically say they're not paying attention. We are now the drink for athletes. And Gatorade lost share to Powerade, was already losing share to vitamin water. They were spending way too much money to try to, to shift the market's understanding of their liquid, right? And then they had to spend four to five years after that shifting back to athletes. So a massive mistake they made because they took their eye off the ball and their core consumer 
and they went after something that was in the market that they thought was a bigger threat or they thought was cooler or, or where they wanted to be. And what we talked about in this conversation, myself and this other uh, person in the business, is that you see this happen all the time in, in the alcohol space as well. You have new marketers that come in. Some marketers, no offense to the marketers who potentially listen to this podcast, who actually don't give a shit about the alcohol category, right? They were selling Crest or Goodyear tires or something else before CPG, CPG yeah. before they came into the alcohol space. There's something sexy about what Vitamin Water was doing at the time, right? And so they thought, oh, Vitamin Water is working with all these cool hip-hop artists, et cetera. Like, we want Gatorade to be that as well. And they forgot that Gatorade had these amazing brand evangelists and athletes. And they completely pivoted and really hurt the brand for about 10 years. And I think that we see this so much in alcohol, right? We see it in tequila where you have so many brands chasing a, a – a 1942 profile and our 1942 knockoffs, mm-hmm. right? We see this happening a lot in scotch. So I want where you see scotch positioning itself as like a cocktail liquid in the same vein as bourbon. Like, mm-hmm. and I think that this is just such a huge mistake and something I want to talk about and talk about some of the examples. So the biggest one I want to start to first, I think is, is tequila. Yeah. And Fortaleza is a really good example of this. This is a brand that hasn't taken its eye off the ball and it's continued to be very strategic in terms of appealing to a consumer base that cares that this that the product is actually made the traditional way without any you know additives and tastes like actual agave yeah right and has not tried to pivot and go after a market that has always has already found its tequila they love which is 1942 and i think that that's the problem when you do this is like you there's not many case studies if you look back at marketing um, of brands that follow a brand that's already in the lead and ever win. You almost right. always lose. And I don't know, like, so that was something that, I, that I've just been thinking about a lot over the past uh, few weeks as I've been out on leave in terms <laughs> of like all the times you, I don't, consistently you see everyone just copying each other instead of innovating and no one ever wins, I feel like. I just wonder if, in the context of the Fortaleza conversation, like they haven't been purchased by no. anyone, right? Like it's a pretty small company. The production's relatively small. Like they have, they have like you know they are made a specific way, and it seems like an authentic way, right? right? And it seems like at this current moment they want to preserve that, and there's no reason for them to like increase or. No reason, but also kind of no way for them to increase production in a way to compete with, you know, like a Don Julio. So I don't know. I think that's definitely a part of this conversation. And I wonder if it would change if Fortaleza was purchased by a big spirits brand and the marketing. Oh, I think they would ruin it. Yeah. yeah, The marketing people there might say, like, actually, we need you to go after Don Julio. We want to be hanging out with DJs, too. Exactly. And so what do we have to spend to hang out with DJs? And how do we have to change our packaging to make it look like 1942? But the problem is every consumer of 1942 knows that that's just a 1942 ripoff. Yeah. Right. And they don't care about what's – and that consumer doesn't care that what's the ripoff in the bottle is – Made in Good, a different way. Better, it's a, they don't better. care. Yeah. No, no, no. It's a 1942 ripoff. Yeah. In the same way that, like, a fashion brand that's an you know that's chasing another fashion brand, the consumer says, "Well, th- this just looks like they're copying, you know, Gucci, or this just looks right. like they're copying Balenciaga. This isn't their own core look and feel. It's just a copycat. So, like, why do I care? 
why would I ever leave the brand that I'm already loyal to for right. this other brand? Unless there was some reason, which is it's a it's cheaper or something like that. Right. But it, that's or, not what's or the other or the leader has to really fuck up. Like yeah. you have to have a Bud Light situation. Oh sure, that's the only way that this works. Yeah. But I think the other point here is, especially when it comes to the sort of premium spirits, you know, 42 is ex- an expensive bottle. The whole yeah. point is that you can you can compete with it in a way if you deliver something that is sort of an actual, like a knockoff, right? That's a, this looks vaguely similar, tastes vaguely similar, and is a lot cheaper. But you what you can't really do is create the same tasting, similar packaged product that has a similar price point and be like, exactly. okay, but you should drink this instead. Because the argument, even if it is in the case of something like a Fortaleza, where you are maybe trying to make an argument about the quality of the product and the authenticity of the process and all of that, it's just not going to... The 42 drinker is not really for the most part, going to care a ton about that no. spiel, right? They're in it for something else. And I think, you know, tequila is a really fascinating piece. You know, I've long been uh, fascinated by and sort of morbidly intrigued by this sort of ongoing struggle within tequila between the sort of multiple wings of the tequila industry, wherein you have obviously your very large scale production, mm-hmm. you have your smaller artisanal productions, but also you have the sort of style that is moving in the market that is moving towards you know longer oak aging more kind of bringing the the barrel influence in trying to create products that more directly compete with bourbon in particular and whiskey in general versus of course the more kind of um, the unaged the the blanco the silver expressions even in some cases very very high-end expressions that have you know in many cases i think a pretty different audience and that's the other challenge in, in tequila in particular i think which is that you know, when you're trying to set out to make a really premium product, you kind of have to pick what part of the of the market you're even aiming at. And to me, the thing that doesn't make a lot of sense is because 42 is so entrenched in that high end, you know, oak aged sort of baller bottle spot. Yeah, you could Mm -hmm. try to go after them. And I can understand why there's an appeal to that, right? It's a lucrative market. And it's a you know, for a certain kind of person, it's a cool market, right? You want your bottle to be the thing that everyone is spending a thousand dollars on in a Vegas nightclub. But at the same time, like that's just such a tough thing to displace because as we've talked about on the pod in a variety of ways before, like those are status symbols. They're not really about what's in the bottle and in a fundamental way. And so displacing the status symbol is even harder than just displacing a quality product. Yeah. I think, you know, what we've seen is I think I don't know. Tell me if I'm wrong. Like existing brands who have loyal drinkers who are then expanding their portfolios to have something to compete with a 1942, right? Assuming that Mm -hmm. their drinkers will then, I don't know, trade up or see that they have that and then go to go to them for it instead of 1942. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think what's happening in the meantime is that kind of like with the Gatorade situation is they're then ignoring the, the their core consumers yes. to focus on developing these other products yes. that they think their consumers will go for, but really that's not why their consumers are there. Right, because I would say every brand that's and, – and then I want to move on to another, I think, great category. another example yeah, yeah. category, but I think every brand right now that's creating a 42 competitor, besides – okay, fine. Let's leave out the brands that are being created by wealthy entrepreneurs who are going to to Mexico right now and creating, saying, "Give me a forty two ripoff." I'm talking sure. about the larger tequila house, you know, yeah, yeah. houses, bodegas that have already been established, that already exist, that 
already had core tequilas, mm-hmm. whether they had additives, didn't have additives, etc. A lot of them are creating things that look and feel a lot like 1942. Let's say baller bottles. Yeah, baller bottles. Because Classe Azul is there too. Yes, baller bottles. And I think a lot of those brands are ignoring their core consumer. And I think you're going to see the Gatorade example with a lot of them. uh, Because there cannot be more, there cannot be multiple winners here. Look, you see this even with Hennessy. Hennessy truly is the leader amongst a certain demographic with cognac and the other people that follow and try to copy Hennessy are always the alternative. Mm -hmm. They're, they're never the market leader. That's just the way that it works. And unless Hennessy slips up, you are not going to catch them and you are never going to be catch them because they have too much entrenched cultural cachet. And so you, you would be better off going for other, other people, right? I think that Remy Martin has been very smart in the past few years of really focusing on bartenders and, and cognac cocktails, et cetera, mixology. Hennessy really hasn't done that. Right. And that's fine. But they don't need to. They don't need to. It's like if Hennessy suddenly started to try to go after. Then that would, then that would make more sense. Hennessy would take their eye off the ball of, you know, sponsoring the NBA and their huge music sponsorships and things like that, which make a lot of sense for them. Another category I think that like, I think is going to regret a large strategy of itself over the past, uh, you know, let's say 20, 30 years is scotch and specifically single malt scotch. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of single malt scotches, because look, you've seen a lot of the, of, uh, you know, crashes in terms of like sales, et cetera. Like the depletions are going way, way down. So single malt scotch is saying, shit, what do we do? Oh my God, there's this cocktail culture. Okay. People are drinking a lot of whiskey cocktails. We should convince people that like a 12 year old scotch could be used in a cocktail. Mm-hmm. But I actually think, again, that's a really bad strategy because single malt scotch for the longest time in the consumer mindset has been a luxury product and luxury products don't get used in cocktails. Yeah. Right. Luxury products are sipped. They're drunk on the rocks. You can say all you want that that is a bullshit bias that a bunch of American consumers have, but it's a bullshit bias that a bunch of American consumers have. <laughs> and that's what its core <laughs> audience has always had. I don't think you're ever going to bring in new Scotch drinkers that drink a Scotch cocktail. They're like, you know what? I'm going to buy an 18-year-old and sip it straight. Mm-hmm. And one of the only brands, again, that has been very smart at never doing this is the Macallan. Mm. They sell their 12-year-old Scotch like a truly high-end Scotch in mm-hmm. the same way they sell the rest of their range. And you see a lot of other Scotches that are thinking, oh, crap, should we go into cocktails? What do we do? And then we'll get people to trade up. It's way too confusing for consumers. Hmm. And I think that this is another thing where, like, the industry is going to look back on this and say that was a mistake of the last five to ten years. We have to go back to just talking about scotch as this beautiful, nuanced sipping liquid that can be appreciated by the same high-end bourbon connoisseurs and wine connoisseurs that we were marketing to ten years prior. Yeah. And it just kind of is what it is. We 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 belong at the Brandy Library. We don't necessarily belong, uh, let's say, at like Mr. Paradise. Mm-hmm. Not to say anything ill of Mr. Paradise, but cool these are kid, specific bars in New York. Cool Kid Cocktail <laughs> Club. And like, and let's also be honest. And we could have a totally separate podcast about this, but we don't really have to. There are no really good fucking Scotch cocktails. The penicillin. No one has no one has fresh ginger ginger syrup almost ever. Right. And if you don't have that, it sucks. And the Rob Roy and my grandfather drank it, but like also it's a blended Scotch cocktail. For really being honest, right. the Godfather. Yeah. Oh, okay. Don't even no. And the highball, <laughs> which sucks. A Scotch highball sucks. I'm no no offense to the Brits in the world. Oh, is that popular? It's very popular in, in Britain. Oh. But again, Brits love Scotch. Like, I think Brits love Scotch 
highballs because they drink scotch regularly yeah. and they're just having a watered down scotch. They're used to it in the same way that parts of the American Southwest love ranch waters or tequila sodas because they drink tequila regularly. Mm-hmm. And when they're when they need something that's a more social version of that, they drink a watered down tequila. Make it long. Yeah. yeah. But I don't want to fucking eyeball. It's gross. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's really interesting to discuss this because I've always been sort of struck by the the scotch brands that have really tried the single malt brands that have tried to get into the cocktail scene and you know they sponsor cocktail events they're they're very present but i've never felt like it you know to to put a point on it's never really translated into traction either in cocktail on cocktail lists or you know just kind of at bars in general and i think that the reason for that is exactly what you were saying adam that like the american consumers perception of scotch is that it's a thing that you have you know a a very nice pour of you sip it you think about it you contemplate it and that's that's your way you engage with scotch and like Mm -hmm. yeah sure maybe that doesn't do the greatest things for scotch's market all the time and maybe it is hard to kind of move a lot of product through that specific drinking experience and there are obviously a few others but like when you're a product and your sort of argument for yourself is like, hey, you can like add a little bit of scotch to your cocktail to make it, you know, give it a little smokiness. Like, is that really how you want to be talking about your like extremely high end product? Like, yeah. yeah, you can add a half ounce of it to this drink. Like that's I mean, that's just feels like you're tr- you want to be a part of the conversation. And look, I, I get it. You know, all spirits want to be a part of the cocktail scene in one way or another, because yeah. cocktails are an important way that people in- interact with and engage with spirits but i agree that there's there's so few times where someone has like i think the best you can hope to do is have a cocktail somewhere that you that use a scotch and be like oh i really like that drink maybe i want to recreate it at home as best i can i'll go buy a bottle of scotch but you know what people do in those in those cases they go buy a cheap bottle of scotch because they recognize in a lot of cases they don't really need a fancy bottle to do the you know add a little smokiness thing or whatever and you know I have a certain like the the Rob Roy is an okay cocktail, but yeah, would I generally just opt for a Manhattan? Probably. Yeah, I mean, like they'll take a blended cocktail, right? But otherwise, I mean, sorry, a blended scotch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and look, you see this even with strategies, right? Every single bourbon brand that's not trying to be a sipping bourbon, all following the same strategy of going after the old fashioned, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody wins there. I think like when you continue to see marketing strategies that just copy other people's marketing strategies that have been successful, you kind of think like, is everyone just stupid? Like, or are people just lazy? Is no one creative anymore? It, because they they often don't work. In wine, perfect example, right? Everyone now following the natural wine trend. The natural wine brands that are successful are the ones that were doing this well before, you know, they were found out and it First, became popular, yeah. right? And 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 how? Why were they? Why are they being so successful now? Because they're seen as authentic and legitimate. Mm-hmm. And yes, do I think that as we've talked about before, there can be some mass market brands that fool other consu- consumers into thinking they're natural and sell a lot, one hundred percent. But they will follow Zach's playbook in the good point he made earlier, which is because they will become the knockoff. Yeah. Like no one is saying that H and M or Zara's strategy is bad. Mm-hmm. It's actually very good, but it's a different strategy. It's not trying to be equal to the high-end fashion house. It's just saying, we watched Fashion Week this season, we saw the trends, and yeah. we were able to rip it off and make it in very economically deprived countries right. for dirt fucking cheap and sell it to a, a consumer base that just wants to feel like they are on par with what everyone else is wearing. So then, so how do you make make money then? Like, how how do you, without, like, cheapening your brand 
to attract other consumers and without pigeon like otherwise aren't aren't these brands like pigeonholed into a certain thing i think you have to own your differentiation like you so for example you can be a premium tequila but then why does your bottle look exactly like another premium tequila right so think a lot about this is what makes us different and here's who we're here for right i've talked about this a bunch like where is the te- where is the premium high end tequila for the fine dining occasions for the high end cocktail occasions for the high end entertainment en- entertaining occasions every single tequila right now that's high end is also chasing high energy nightlife yeah mm. no one is chasing the other high end occasions that truly exist again i really think lvmh has written a book on this with their fashion and with their champagnes. Yeah. They have said these are the champagnes. They understand all champagnes are for rich people. All champagne. Mm-hmm. But you have the accessible rich person champagne in Veuve. You have the artistic champagne you know, in Royanart. You have the sort of, I don't know, high-end educated academic champagne in Krug. Right? You really have to know if you drink Krug. You have just the I'm wealthy as fuck champagne in Dom Perignon. Mm-hmm. Like they've done it with all of the houses so that the only the only mistakes they've made is that I think in the U.S. Moet and Vuv are a little too close t- together in terms of competing, mm-hmm. which is why and so Vuv wins. But otherwise, every champagne is very clearly differentiated yeah. besides the fact that every champagne is a high end luxury item. Right. They all are. If they weren't, then these fancy restaurant psalms wouldn't complain that so many of their fancy restaurant clientele request Vogue and they have to explain they don't have it on the list. Mm-hmm. So I think that like that's what you have to do in these in these situations. You can't just copy. You have to figure out a way to both obviously go after a similar demographic but differentiate mm. because I think what happens is people assume that – the whole market must only gravitate to this, this style, this look, this, et cetera. But it's actually not true. The market gravitates to authenticity, to, you know, brands that tell a really great story. And some of the market that likes this one product may shift. Yeah. If you start, you know, telling a really strong story that like this is a product that is made in a much more sustainable way that it has, you know, that has zero added, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that might resonate. But those kinds of stories, those do take years upon years upon yeah. years of educating the market. I, I want to make one last point here, I think that's really, that I think has come clear to me as we've been talking about this, which is that, and, and actually going back to the Gatorade example that you started with, Adam, I think what we really have learned in this conversation is that brands can't talk out of two sides of their mouth at the same time. And what Gatorade in that example did was they were trying to still say, yeah, we're a high performance sports drink, right? We're the drink that you should have when you are exercising, when you're running a marathon, et cetera. But also, the same bottle, the same liquid is just a thing you have whenever, right? It's just like a thing you drink because you want to have something to drink and you don't want to just drink water. And that is a that is a kind of message that inevitably is going to hurt you in both ends because neither side is going to really believe you. Gatorade doesn't taste good enough to be the soda replacement. And if it's not a serious sports drink, then it's not. Then why are people who are competing athletically drinking it? Conversely, I think with these examples that we've said, you know, if your tequila isn't uh, something that's designed for, you know, really exceptional cocktails or is, you know, or something that is meant to be really treasured and sipped, but is instead the thing that you should be, you know, getting taking photographs of in a nightclub, 
it's really hard to say those two things about your bottle at the same time. And same thing with scotch, right? You can't say that it's this thing that should be a cocktail ingredient and super user-friendly and accessible, but also really premium and something for special occasions. Like those are just messages that do not work alongside one another and therefore both fail in a lot of cases. And even if, as you know, Joanna's question about what should brands do, how do they avoid this? Well, Sometimes it's just about like owning where you are. And I think that's exactly what you were saying, Adam, that if you're a a producer of single malt scotch, yeah, maybe you're never going to be as prominent in American bars as bourbon. Tough luck. That's just the reality of it. And you can keep chasing this sort of fictitious idea that one day you will be as integral to cocktail culture as, you know, other forms of whiskey are, but it just ain't happening. And that's okay. Like there's a, plenty of use cases for single malt whiskey, single malt scotch, and lots of people who, you know, no drinker is, well, very few drinkers are as sort of single-minded that this is like, this is the thing I drink. People recognize, you know, as to the champagne example, there are different occasions for different drinks, and the same drinker will drink a different drink, a different spirit, or different expression of the same spirit in different settings. And that's, you know, you have to be there in the settings that work for you, and when you start trying to chase other ones is when I think you maybe, yeah, you lose your you lose your footing everywhere. Yeah. I get the impulse to want to own a category, right, like for these brands. But I just think that because the market is so saturated now and there's so many options out there that it's just like too hard to do that. And it doesn't seem like a smart marketing strategy. Yeah, I I, I think you're right. And I think, you know, what what marketers forget a lot is that consumers ultimately are fickle and people do come back and things ebb and flow and if you continue to just own your core audience and play your game you will they will ultimately come back i really have a very strong belief that we're going to see the rise in the popularity again of single malt scotch very soon i think people are tiring of bourbon i think that like the fact that there are bourbons on the list that are just so freaking expensive at this point even to try a sip of is, you know, and you have scotches that are twice the age that are affordable is going to draw people back to scotch in a lot of ways for people who actually really do like whiskey. Mm-hmm. I do. I do really think that's going to happen. But those the brands that they come back to are to be brands that have kind of maintained their position as these high quality, well-made whiskeys, not whiskeys that adapted themselves in order to be used in cocktails. Look, bourbon had the same problem, right? Like, we know that it lost favor in the United States for a while, and some of those bourbon producers, you know, chased vodka for a very long time and tried to convince people that, like, they were just the same as vodka and could be used in, like, the, you know, 70s clubs and and 80s clubs, and that didn't work. And then a, a new consumer base rediscovered bourbon and the allure of bourbon and fell in love with it. And I think the same thing is going to happen again for Scotch, will happen to you know, tequilas that truly feel authentic. I think Mezcal is going to have a lot to do with that. Mm. If you see the rise of Mezcal, like people are going to start caring much more about artisanal and things like that. So, again, I, I just think you got to sort of play your own game and execute your strategy and stop worrying so much about uh, other people's strategies. Um, that's sort of the key piece of advice that you learn in school. Right, is you execute your strategy and you just do it as well as you can and you keep optimizing that strategy. But if you borrow or steal someone else's strategy, you're never going to achieve the same level of success as they have. It will always feel forced, which is always will. Yeah. All right, well, fun discussion. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I will see you both back here on Monday. Talk to you then. Sounds great. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire Vine Pair staff and everyone who's been involved in making Vine Pair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.